Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Well, good afternoon, good afternoon, and how are you? Welcome to the DR Things Show, where we connect you through insights, information, and illumination. So I don't know about you, but when I listen to the news, it's a little bit like going on a roller coaster ride. They're the highs, and then they're the lows. But I have to say that the COVID report seems to be a lot of a turning of the tide with the vaccines being released here in South Africa, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and we wait, and we wait. And, you know, I was thinking about a video that someone sent out, and I'm not sure if you've seen it. It's of a little toddler, this sweet little toddler, and she keeps going to little things that look like sanitizer dispensers, and she puts her hand under it, and then you see her, these chubby little fingers, these little hands rubbing together, and, you know, it's so amusing to see that. And yet when you think about what's actually happening, that these young little children are learning a new way of being in the world to sanitize and sanitize and rub hands together and to wear masks. And I must say, after I watched the video, I certainly thought to myself, I wonder what impact this is going to have on our children later on in life. This generation being born into a world or growing up in a world where you can't really read facial cues, you know, the the, the expression in the eyes, yes, but the nose, the mouth, it's hidden. And, you know, this sanitizer and the cleaning all the time. And we'll only know in many, many years to come, which I think is such a good introduction for the show that we have today, because we're going to be talking about just that, the impact that the Holocaust had on young children, young survivors, um, how they then went on and lived their lives. Um, so we are, we're focusing on two books today. We have such an amazing show lined up for you, really, really, really. And I'm so excited to be talking about two books. I love, love books. I'll never forget uh, Marcus Cicero, um, that that famous quote where he said, a room without books is like a body without a soul. So that's what we're talking today. We're talking two books. I have the author of the first book um, on the line. We've crossed over all the way to Swansea um, in Wales. Uh, it's a book called Survivors, Children's Lives After the Holocaust. And then we're going to be coming all the way back to South Africa. And we're going to be looking at another book called The Man, the Man Behind the Mask, The Power of the Book the power of the written word. So let me not hesitate any further. Let me introduce our first guest, Rebecca Clifford, who's an associate professor of modern European history at Swansea University. Um, she's written three books, and um, this is her third book, um, Survivors, Children's Lives After the Holocaust, and an incredible response she's had to this book. Um, it's been nominated for Britain's top nonfiction awards, including the Bailey Gifford, uh, Gifford Prize, the Longman History Today Prize, and the Wingate Literary Prize. Um, they, she made the long list, but sadly not the short list, um, and was named Book of the Year 2020 by The Telegraph. Extraordinary. I cannot wait to read it, uh, but let me welcome our guest, Rebecca Clifford. Rebecca, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Nikki, thanks so much for having me. It's really exciting to be here. 
So before our audience gets confused because you have such a beautiful Canadian accent, and even though we are speaking to you in Wales and that's where you live at the moment, you are originally from Canada, right? That's right. I grew up in Canada and spent uh, the whole early part of my life there. Um, came to Britain to do a PhD at Oxford and then uh, 10 years ago got this uh, job in beautiful Swansea. And so that's where I'm sitting this morning. Oh, that's wonderful, Rebecca. Well, you heard my introduction about how extraordinary this COVID experience has been for everybody, the ups, downs, really the fear, the losses, and lots of growth as well, and the impact that it's going to be having not only on us, but of course, this new generation, this new body of children who are going to be, you know, trying to assess one another, not just behind a mask. Um, and so I, I love that you did this incredible research when writing this book, Survivors, Children's Lives After the Holocaust. But it wasn't your first book about the Holocaust. Am I correct? No, that's right. It's actually my second book about the Holocaust, my third book. Uh, but in a way, in a funny way, it's the most precious book to me thus far and maybe forever. It's the one I've been waiting to write. It's the one that's sort of been bubbling in me for years and writing it was a exceptionally good, good feeling. I know that sounds odd because so many people said to me, how can you bear to work on such a depressing topic? And I never found this topic depressing. I, I found it fascinating from beginning to end because of course in the book, I look at children who survive and I look at their lives after the Holocaust and what they go on to do and how they make sense of their childhoods as they age. And I found that um, very, very in enriching. And I don't want to say inspiring because these are difficult life journeys, but um, you know, j just fascinating, wonderful, very, very human. Mm, I can, I, I can relate to that and being fascinated and because it really speaks to, you know, the, the resilience, the power of the human being, um, and That's these right. children growing up. So, so Rebecca, where did you, where did you go in terms of researching this? Did you, um, use particular children? Did you just uh, try and look at the whole story generally? What was your approach when writing the book? It changed as I went along. It took me six years to write this book. Oh, not a surprise. It's true with any book that takes a long time. Um, I decided sort of as I went that I wanted to look at the stories of 100 children. So there are 100 children in the book and they are born in pretty much every country of continental Europe. And then they all end up in diaspora. So it was the, their experience. They all survived the Holocaust. They're in continental Europe during, during the war period. And after the war, they're sort of shunted into this really crazy glo global diaspora where they move across first national borders and maybe they move into DP camps. And then they end up in Britain, in Canada, in the United States, in Australia. I'm afraid none of them in the book end up in South Africa, but certainly there were children who did. Oh, yes, um, they were. And that's right. In fact, I, I, South Africa had a dedicated program to bring child survivors over, and it wasn't the only country that did. So they have this kind of, you, I call it a double dislocation in the book, that they've lived through, they've survived the genocide, and then they, you know, have to say goodbye to the cultures and the languages they've grown accustomed to and sure. move often into the English-speaking world. Mm -hmm. And And so really it's, you know, what I'm interested in, what I looked at in the book is, what happens to your childhood memories when you go through that double dislocation? You've lost your hometown, you've lost your parents, you've lost your siblings, and there's nobody left to explain those funny memories to you. You know how childhood memories are, like they're kind of fragmented and patchy and a little hazy. And 
Well, we all have that. That's just a normal part of human life. And, and, but normally, you know, if we have a funny memory, we can go to our mother, right? And say, mom, what am I, what is this memory? But for these children, they didn't have that. So they had to struggle to patch it together. So the book is really about that lifelong, seven decades of trying to figure out what is this thing I'm remembering? What does it mean? Where am I from? Who am I? Oh, how fascinating. Honestly, Rebecca, we're going to take a quick break. Please um, stay with us. I've got so many questions. Um, We'll be right back. Hi, FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to the DL Link Show on 101.9 High FM. I have Rebecca Clifford, Associate Professor of Modern European History at Swansea University. Um, and she's a three-time author. And this is her third book that we are discussing, Survivors, Children's Lives After the Holocaust. And Rebecca, so true what you were saying just before the break, because memories are fragmented. I mean, I, I, I did a very brief course on memories, and I found it fascinating that every time, because our brains are trying to store so much information that when you're thinking back, you're almost recollecting a memory and that memories are not always so accurate. So when you're dealing with children, as you say, they don't have a mother or father to retell the memory or kind of bring the memories back together. And I'm sure there's so much trauma. Did you find any parallels though? Were there patterns that you picked up in terms of these children trying to recollect their past, their memories? That's a good question. And I mean, I, this, the book is really driven by stories and I tell some of the stories in the book that really showcase that question, I suppose. You know, what is the pattern here? What, what is it like to try to piece your memories together? I suppose the common thread is that almost all these children do have some kind of patchy memory. And what's amazing is just how insistently that memory bangs on the door. There's um, a particular survivor whose story I, I talk about in a lot of different chapters because it's such a really remarkable story, Jackie Y. And he has this dream. He he keeps seeing um, this kind of lovely country estate with sweeping green, you know, grounds that go down to a horse racing track. And he's always asking his parents, what is this I'm dreaming about? And his mother keeps saying, oh, everybody has dreams like that. It's not a big deal. Forget about it. Forget about it. Well, he doesn't realize he doesn't know anything about his own past at this point. But eventually sort of bits start to drop into place. He finds out when he's about 10 that he's actually adopted. And it's very shocking for him, but he kind of, you know, accepts it. And then when he's about 15, someone mentions to him that he's actually born abroad. And this is harder to take. He goes to his parents and said, what is this that I was born in in Austria? And then his parents start to get a little bit like, we don't want to talk about it, Jackie, don't bring it up. It, It hurts our feelings. Just, you know, you're our child now. And then uh, finally, when he's on the verge of getting married, uh, he he goes with his fiance to the shul. And of course, he has to prove that he's Jewish. And his adopted um, adoptive mother says, um, you know, you'll just have to take my word for it. And the secretary at the shul says, well, no, I can't do that. You have to you have to demonstrate that he's Jewish. And she says, um, she says, OK, I've got a document in the safety deposit box. I'll go get it and I'll show it to you. And that'll that'll prove it. And Jackie's thinking what is going on? So his mom goes, gets this document and she, they go back to the shul, she hands it over and, and the secretary says, okay, fine, I can, I see he's Jewish and hands it back. And when, when this document's being passed back to the, the mother, Jackie grabs it and he sees that he was in a concentration camp in Theresienstadt 
He's almost like 20 years old at this time. He has no idea. And so he's screaming and everything suddenly comes to a head. You know, this is very common. Um, a lot of child survivors describe this, knowing something isn't right. And then suddenly it all bursts out and they're like, wow. oh, that's what was going on. But finally, around this time, he 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 asked his dad, you know, if I was in an orphanage, where where was that? And his dad says, well, it was down in this place called called Lingfield in Surrey. And so he's driving with his fiance and he sees the image from his dream, that country estate, those sweeping green lawns, the horse racing track. It was the orphanage where he was before he was adopted. And uh, and it was always there. It was always there in his memory. He just had no one to explain it because his adopted parents didn't want to tell him. And I think this is, first of all, it's true for most of the child survivors in the book. But it's also true for many of us, right, that we have memories, especially if you've had a chaotic childhood or traumas in your childhood. There are memories that are there and they're very like incessantly kind of banging in your head. And until you get some help to understand what they are, they will just keep on banging away. I I was amazed by just how powerful those early memories are how they stay and they have a kind of evocative power over your over your whole life until they heard or until they you know given room and and um that as you say they keep knocking on the door i think it's such a fascinating story i really do rebecca i so i have to ask the question then and i'm sure that that it's all you know that ages differ but how old was jackie when so he was in a concentration camp was it when um you know the allies then arrived and that's how he was then um liberated or was he hidden and i know that it's a detail here but i'm i'm trying to piece together how young he was that he only has those kind of vague memories of the orphanage. So the orphanage actually is, the orphanage he remembers with the lovely lawns is after the war. So Jackie was in Theresienstadt, which is quite particular concentration camp in some ways because there were um, special homes in the camp for children and one home for infants. So he was deported to the camp when he was an infant. He was an uh, infant. By himself. And he survived. I mean, we're never going to really understand why these children survived, but clearly some adults made some enormous sacrifices to protect them because there's several children from the infant's home who survive and then end up coming to Britain after the war. So Jackie was in an orphanage, a, a care home for child concentration camp survivors in the village of Lingfield in Surrey. And he was there for, um, it's not quite clear, but probably um, up until about the age of of five or six, and then he was adopted. So he's having a memory of after the war in this care home before his adoption, but he was young enough at the time of adoption that his parents just decided, you know, let's pretend it didn't happen. Let's pretend Mm -hmm. he was always our child, which was very common in this period that would have been uh, in the, you know, in the late 1940s. Mm, um, so we can understand so in that context. Yeah, really, Rebecca. And I don't want to give too much away because I'm sure there's so many people who really can't wait to get their hands on this book. Um, but if you can, um, the, the, again, we're looking at general because you're going into particular stories, which I love. Were the, the, the hundred children that you looked at, um, were they able to move on um, and have normal lives, normal family lives? Or were the trickles of the memory, the trauma that would come back and knock on the door kind of holding them back? And I know it's so difficult because we're looking at a hundred. Um, but, but what do you have to say about that? So two things. 
first on the concept of normal and second on the concept of, of moving on, I suppose. Okay. So I see all these children as normal. Um, right. But the adults who cared for them after the war did not and often used terms like the children have been denormalized. We have to renormalize them. Um, I see the children as absolutely normal children who went through very abnormal experiences and then went on. I mean, I think it's in many ways for them, the great triumph is that their lives are so ordinary. When I was doing interviews for the project, so many of them said, well, why do you want to talk to me about my life after? You know, it's just ordinary. And I, I always said, but it's the fact that it's ordinary. That's so wonderful. Let's talk about your ordinary, spectacular life. And, and in terms of moving on, no. I think that's the whole point of the book. It's always there. That doesn't mean that it exerts a terrible and dis destructive power on your life. It means it's part of you. I think yeah. that's what the adults who cared for the children after the war couldn't wrap their heads around. You know, they so, there was still a very loving group of adults in many ways. They wanted to help the children to forget. And the ultimate message, I think, is cannot forget something that is part of you and it isn't really good to try to do that uh, it was part of them what happened to them it was at the point where they accepted this is part of my story that that's the kind of moment where it became easier to put all those pieces those disparate pieces together i think Mm. And of course, you drawn to this topic because you yourself, your your mother was an infant Holocaust survivor. That's right. Um, and uh, your uncle and grandmother were survivors. So this is you've grown up within this environment, right? You bet. And uh, I really felt very strongly. I did not want this book to be about my family. Uh -huh. um, partly because I just never wanted my own experience to overshadow the unique experiences of the 100 children in the book. And partly because I want to one day write a book about my family and my experiences. But did it change how I understand my family? Absolutely. I understand mm -hmm. everything in a new light now. And if I, you know, if I wanted to be honest, that probably was one of the motivations. That's why I so desperately wanted to write this book. It was a deep exploration of something I know very intimately, but it isn't about me and my family, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Of course it does. And we don't want to have a spoiler for your next book, but <laughs> I have to ask the question, your mother being an infant Holocaust survivor, did she remember, was it kept from her or was she told from a young age? So my mother was really an infant. She was born in July 1944 in Budapest. Anybody who knows about the Holocaust will know that was a pretty bad place and time to be born. Um, her father was, uh, my grandfather was deported to Buchenwald and we don't know really where he died. Um, but like so, so many families, so she has no memory of the war of all, of course, she, you know, uh -huh. she, was, she was a baby. But what she remembers is that long, long period after the war when they were waiting to find out anything. Where was her dad? Was he coming back? Of course, people were coming back for up to 10 years later. There was this trickle of people coming back. And so there was always a, a, a long period of un terrible uncertainty with tension in the household and, you know, tears behind closed doors. And that's what she remembers, this gray, grim, bombed out city where, you know, they were now part of the... um in the orbit of the Soviet Union and things were changing over into communism and there was never enough of anything and everything was falling apart. There were rats in their building and they're just waiting, waiting, waiting for the ones who were, you know, sent away. Were they going to come back? And that's a very 
um, unstable way to grow up. So that is how, you know, that's how it formed her. And I think her response to to raising me and my brother was then to give us the most stability she possibly could. And I had a very stable and loving childhood. Amazing. Rebecca, you've said that, um, did it give you greater insight into your family? Absolutely. So the last question I have for you is, and because you've said you loved it and it took you six years and there was so much shifting and changing. And I can just, you know, as you, as you speak about this book, it's as if you're holding this beautiful baby in, in your arms. And so what for you would you say was the most transformative thing for you personally about writing this book? That's a great question that no one has asked me before. And I, <laughs> I think it was honestly, it was just the privilege of listening to these stories. So yeah. I, I did. So of the hundred children in the book, I interviewed a quarter myself and then the rest I used existing, existing interviews. But for each one, I mean, I am an oral historian. It's not like doing interviews was new. I've been doing them for a, a decade, more than a decade now is my primary way of doing my research. But there was really something different and uniquely I don't know felt like a unique privilege to listen to these stories and I just was blown away by how much I learned not about the holocaust necessarily but just about life and also about growing old and how your you know your past your relationship with your past changes as you grow old I there were things like now they seem obvious to me but I just had no idea like the fact that when you retire your past can bubble up at that point because you're not so busy anymore. Here I was interviewing these, you know, people in their 70s and 80s, but I'm in my 40s with a really busy, hectic career and two little kids. And they were describing that time of life. You know, they were saying, oh, when I was in my 40s, you know, I was building my career and I had my little kids. I didn't have time to think about my past. But as soon as the kids had left the house and, you know, I was my career was established or I was retiring, suddenly it all came back. Mm-hmm. And I I was just I was just blown away by the power of that, of knowing that's coming in my own life, right? This uh-huh. day, this time is coming when I will see my past differently. But right now I'm in the thick of a really crazy, busy life moment. And I guess what I'm saying is those interviews gave me a very deep appreciation for like the life cycle that I hadn't understood before, how we change as we age and and how those moments give us new opportunities and how our past will not seem the same as we as we grow older. So I'm I kind of, it's like it's almost like I know what's coming now in my own life. This time will come that isn't so crazy and isn't so hectic and I'm like right now literally locked down in my house with my children with no school for months and months and it's all in you know we have a two and a half bedroom house we're all on top of each other we're getting (laughs) irritated with each other but this moment is going to pass and the thing that's coming is a quieter time when that question of you know my family's history it's going to look different and for anybody out there listening you know if you're my age and you're also in the thick of your career and you've got your little kids and you're trying to navigate this coronavirus world that moment is going to pass and what comes in its wake might be surprising. Um, oh, that's what I learned. Oh, Rebecca, thank you for that. <laughs> so beautifully put. Uh, what comes to mind is I just think of like a big picture perspective. You kind of got this, you know, zoomed out kind of 
perspective, but maybe that's just my perspective. But Rebecca, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Ah, wow. Um, I really can't wait to read the book, Survivors, Children's Lives After the Holocaust. And I'm presuming that they're in all the good stores, bookstores here in South Africa. I'm hoping. I'm hoping Um, too. I'm hoping. Um, otherwise, I'm sure we wouldn't be talking about it. But um, I thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you for taking us into your world and, uh, you know, the interviews and into the world of 100 children who survived the Holocaust and their Thanks. lives thereafter. So thank you so much. It's been a privilege and a delight. It's been a delight for me, too. Thanks so much, Nikki. Thank you, Rebecca. So that uh, was Rebecca Clifford. And Oh, uh, as I said, I can't wait to read the book. Rebecca is an associate professor of modern European history at Swansea University and author of um, Commemorating the Holocaust, The Dilemmas of Remembrance in France and Italy. I know there's another book and then her latest book, Survivors, Children's Lives After the Holocaust. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, so we're going to continue talking about books Um because books are extraordinary and through stories we connect, humanity connects and there's just something magical about books and reading books and, uh, you know, being able to, I'm definitely a physical book person. I love the smell of books. I love holding them. But then, of course, you've got people who love their Kindles too. As long as we're reading, that's what I say. So we're going to move on to our next guest who was on the show four years ago, a long time ago. Um, well, four years, it, it certainly does fly. Um, and she's going to be sharing her story and why she was on the show four years ago and also a book, um, that she has written. And I, I say a co-author, but she'll tell us why. I'd like to welcome Lynn Sherlock, um, onto the show. Lynn, welcome and thank you so much for holding and thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Nikki. Thank you for having me back. So four years ago, Lynn, how time has has gone past very, very quickly. Um, and I'm wondering for you how the time has been because you've used this time to, to write a book. But before we get to the writing of the book, let's, let's just, if you can, just catch the audience up. I'm sure they're going to be those who are listening then who remember, but you really do have an interesting story. It's a love story. It's your husband maguying and then unfortunately losing him to, to brain cancer. But let, let's go back and your association with, with the DL link. So we're going to, before you do start, though, let's have a quick ad break. Um, and then after the ad break, if you can just tell the audience a little bit more about yourself. We'll be right back. Hi, FM 101.9 megahertz of life. Well, if you've just joined us, welcome. This is the DL Link Show, um, where we connect you through insights, information, and illumination. Um, and the DL Link is an incredible organization, which was founded by Michelle Goodman and Jackie Arcelor all the way back in 2010. And really, the, the core mission, vision, um, and inaction is providing a nurturing safe space where patients who are faced with cancer as well as their families can turn to for support. And it's social and emotional and psychological um, support. So we are privileged every week to be able to bring this show to you via um, Chai FM. And um, as I said, it's, it's always a, a privilege with the incredible guests that we have. So I introduce you to our next guest, Lynn Sherlock, who co-authored The Man Behind the Mask. Lynn, um, as I said, if you could just give us a, a, a bit of a background, just fill some of our listeners in as to 
what what happened and, and where you are now. Um, okay, so it wasn't actually co-authored. Chris never wrote a word of the book. Um, Chris and I met online on a dating site, believe it or not. Um, and shortly afterwards, he decided he wanted to Maguire. So we joined Beth David and um, he he converted. We had a legal wedding first because he didn't want to wait. <laughs> and then we had a um, the religious wedding in um, 2013. He was diagnosed with a brain tumor called a GBM, a glioblastoma, in May of 2014. Um, he was an author. He has five books that he published in the 90s and then ultimately did put on Amazon as well. And he decided he wanted to write a book about his journey with the brain tumor. And the day that they were making the radiation mask, um, he had me taking photographs of the mask and how they make it and it being molded to his face that he wanted to use in the book. And that's the day he decided he wanted the title to be the man behind the mask, but he never wrote a word of the book itself. Um, I, I think maybe my producer wrote down co-author because um, you, you took some um pieces from his blog you said he wrote some pieces from the blog so it was really and your story and how you felt so he didn't write anything but it, it's it's certainly about your your journey and his journey the man behind the mask correct yes it, mm. so what what I did is I used his blogs he, he wrote a few during the time the 20 months that he was ill but I also used all the emails that I sent, I would take notes in the doctor's rooms. I literally sat and wrote right throughout the doctor's appointments. And then I would go home and type them up. Never occurred to me to record them for some reason. And I would email them to him and to Chris and his brother who used to live in Singapore. And I kept all of those emails. And in the book are the excerpts you know from the actual emails exactly as I typed them mistakes and all stating you know the questions what the do doctors answered what the concerns were at the time and in between the e the emails I have put in the story from my perspective obviously because that is the only way I could write it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Lynn, because he does, he, he, Chris mentioned that he, as, as you said, he wanted to write the book, although he didn't. Uh, so what was the purpose of you writing this book? So there were two reasons. One was a simple promise to him in the last couple of weeks that I would write it for him. But the main reason was to try and help other people in this situation. You know, when Chris was diagnosed, we looked for books that you know, detailed similar situations. We didn't want a medical jargon book. We wanted to see what were people going through. And um, I think we only ever found one. And it, it's very useful, as with any kind of support group, to see that other people are going through the same thing. It may not diminish the way you feel about what is happening, but it it does, it is comforting mm. to, to hear that, okay, this person felt the same. This person had the same kind of symptoms, and also from a carer point of view, so being his wife and and the main carer until the last six weeks when we actually had carers here, there's so little support for the actual partner slash carer role. 
it's all f- mainly for the person in you know who is going through the whatever the disease is and i'm hoping that it provides some comfort to people who are in the situation that i was in and as well as the patient Mm. And and so for you, Lynn, putting how you were feeling down on paper, was that hard for you? Was it hard to relive that experience or was it in fact quite cathartic? What was it like for you? You know what, if I hadn't promised Chris I would do it and I set myself a goal, I'm not sure I would have completed it because I found it very difficult. Right. I can't say I found it therapeutic in any way. I found it very difficult to relive every detail and months would go by without me touching it, which is why it took me th- over three years to actually complete it. Mm. Um, so it, but I'm glad I did it. it. It's quite a sense of achievement. And also, as I say, I hope it does help others. Mm. I can imagine that must be very difficult to have to relive that, but with the, you know, the objective and the purpose being to help others, as your driving uh, force, that's incredible, Lynn. Um, before we go into more detail about the, the book, I actually want to rewind a little bit because it's so important because there were a few coincidences that, that came into place that really, um, well, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but certainly had an impact on you. Can you speak to those? I know that the one happened in the hospital. Um, that, that, that was how you were introduced to the DL link as well. Maybe you can just speak to those coincidences. Okay, there were actually three main coincidences. The one was the fact that I've been working for a large corporate for 17 years, decided to take a separation package, which because I'd been there so long, was going to cover my income for almost a year. And a week later, Chris was diagnosed. This allows me to actually spend that year not working with him. The second one was on the 28th of May of 2014. He was having brain surgery at Santon Clinic. And I bumped into an ex-colleague who I'd not seen for seven years. And he gave me his card. And he said to me, when you're ready to start working, contact me. And through him, I actually got a job um, a year later. So that was the second one. The third was how we came to know of DL Link. Chris put an advert for a coffee table into the JJCF newsletter. And Michelle actually contacted him. And Chris was very oh. chatty. Anybody who, who knew Chris would know that he loved to chat. Yes. And he told her about what he was going through. And she told him about DL Link. I had never heard of it. And I'm not sure I would have heard of it any other way. So it was really very interesting. And what, 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 so that's a while ago, but how, what was the relationship like, um, with Chris, with you, with the DL Link? So DL Link are an amazing organization. I mean, we attended their, um, hoping is coping course twice. Um, just the contact with other people through the contacts. I still keep contact with, um, um, one of their members, the, the wife passed away and we, together with a few spouses, a few widows, widowers, we formed our own support group and I wouldn't have met him through, I know any other way. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, there wasn't anything. And I don't know if there's, there is now in the way of support for the partners, but it certainly allowed us to meet and talk to people at the, you know, the events they had, the courses, you know, and they had all the, um, those days, the spa days, you know, where yes. they would give the treats and the, the sports car days. I, I have a photo of Chris with this big grin on his face sitting in a, in a schmancy sports car. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I think of all of those events, um, you know, with, with COVID, we, we, we can only remember them and, you know, the DL link continue to reach out and do wonderful, wonderful things. But, you know, those far days, hopefully we'll be able to return back to those days. Soon, 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 soon. So, Lynn, these these three um, coincidences that you that you spoke about at the time, did you see the link, um, or, or were, did you really thread that all together when you were writing the book? Um, I actually threaded it together when I sat down to write a talk for the the show that I, I go to, Beth David, um, on the talk. I mean, on the book, um, and that's when I really kind of identified the three distinct coincidences you know I did think about them while I was writing the book but it it really I mean I would never have known about the Olink had Chris not put the ad in you know that was for me the biggest one and then of course bumping into an ex-colleague um, so they were there in the book but maybe not mentioned so distinctly as coincidences um, but it's funny they say there's no such thing as coincidences so who knows Mm. And, and of course, you know, going and giving the talk and then writing the book gave you the opportunity to look back and see, bring them together and see them for what they were. Kind of like our, in our, our interview before you with Rebecca Clifford and talking about past and memories and remembering things is something to be said about sometimes being quiet and gathering all of that, that, you know, brought us to where we are now, but that maybe I'm going on and on. Um, Lynn, for people who want to get their hands on this book, where can they? So there's only one actual shop that has the real, the actual, the hard copy books, which is um, the book dealers in Bluebird Center. However, you can order a hard copy through Amazon or the, the e-version through Amazon. You can either search under Lynn Sherlock or Christopher Sherlock because my book is on the same uh, link as his his books. Okay, fantastic. So that is The Man Behind the Mask. Lynn, thank you so much. And thank you for writing this book, as you say, to help those who are going through their own journey um, and and hopefully being able to gather something, you know, some kind of support, some kind of insight, as you say, that you're not alone. So thank you for that. It's been wonderful having you on the show and, and do take care. Thanks so much. Thank you, Lynn. We're going to take a break. And then after the break, we're going to hear from one of our um, DL Link uh, warriors. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. And welcome back to the DL Link Show. It's always great when we get to hear from our warriors and from our angels. Um, and this warrior, Russell Lambert, um, had stage three colon cancer. And this is what he has to say about the DL Link. Hi, everyone. My name is Russell Lambert. My dear, dear, sweet partner, Stacy, introduced me to the DL Link. She spoke to Gabby while I was going through chemo. I had stage 3 colon cancer. Thank God that was in 2020. I finished my chemo in August of uh, 2020 and thank God I'm here to tell the tale. With the wonderful help and work from the Deer Link, from Rob who looks after me with my feet, to the whole crew, but especially to Gabby. Gabby who minimum once twice a week takes me for a walk does exercise with me he uh 
it's basically rebuilding my muscle mass that I lost from chemo from, from about moving for uh, basically six months, six to nine months. I cannot praise and thank them all enough. I still to this day see Gabby. They're the most amazing uh, charitable group, especially obviously for cancer sufferers, people going through cancer now. Uh, it's a never-ending battle. And yes, I can't praise the DL Link enough. Uh, and again, on top of that, I can't praise Gabby enough for how he helps me above and beyond. Uh, yeah, a wonderful, 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 wonderful people, group, charity, in every way whatsoever. Again, my name is Russell Lambert, and thank you. Thank you to Russell Lambert. And of course, um, you know, if you want to contact the deal link, if you want to listen to show podcasts or send a donation, um, make sure to follow Chai FM and the deal link on Facebook and Instagram. Um, you can also get the details on the deal link website um, or the Chai FM website. Uh, the podcasts are chaifm.com or go to uh, www.dllink.co.za or you can contact them on 485-3269. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. From me, Nikki Seberini, until next week, do take care. Bye-bye. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008.